0: Welcome back to my sermon podcast. I feel like it's been a few weeks since I posted my last sermon, and I apologize for that. All I can say is it is very busy, uh, very time consuming being a pastor sometimes, and it didn't help that last week I was in Athens, Georgia, for our North Georgia Annual Conference meeting. But I am back, and I look forward to sharing this sermon with you, which focuses on the importance of God's Word, craving the pure spiritual milk of God's Word. Near the end of my sermon, I share a very personal anecdote about how there was a period of time in my Christian life when I certainly was not living on that foundation, and I repented and changed, thank God. uh, The Lord enabled me to repent and change. So uh, more than a couple of people have noticed recently that my sermons have become more personal, and I think that's right. I think that I am willing to share more from my own weaknesses and to make myself um, vulnerable in my sermons. I hope that you guys can appreciate that. Today's scripture comes from 1 Peter 1.22-2.3. Let me read it. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted That the Lord is good. One of my all time favorite TV shows is called Parks and Recreation. It's a sitcom about a parks department in a small town in Indiana. And one of the characters who is unforgettable from the show is named Ron Swanson. He's a man's man. And in one episode, Ron is being sued and sued unjustly. Well, maybe. But anyway, during the trial, a couple of his friends um, go to court and they testify on his behalf. The only problem is everything that they say under oath is a lie. As Ron says, Tom and April were excellent witnesses in my defense. Unfortunately, every single word out of their mouths was a lie. There's only one thing I hate more than lying. Skim milk, which is water. That's lying about being milk. By the way, when did we all switch to drinking skim milk? Am I right in assuming that most of you drink skim milk? No. Oh my goodness. Okay. Well, now how many? I got to see a show of hands now. How many of you drink skim milk in your house? Wow. Oh, wow. I've totally misread you guys. Okay. Well. Let me just say that my household, when I was a kid back in the 80s, we made the switch in the early 80s, and we all thought that it was a healthier choice than whole milk. Um, I remember when I, we first did make the switch, however, when I poured the skim milk over my Rice Krispies, I remember that, that the milk looked blue. And I'm like, Mom, what is this blue milk that we're having to, to use now? Well, I read an article not too long ago that told us, told, told me, that I was sold a bill of goods when it comes to skim milk. That in fact, there's, they've done long-term research and there's really no evidence that drinking skim milk is any better for you than drinking whole milk. In fact, there is evidence to the contrary. Uh, if you think that you're going to lose weight by drinking skim milk rather than whole milk you're wrong because whole milk makes you feel full feel satisfied and so this research indicates that if you want to lose weight you're better off drinking whole milk than skim milk well that was just the excuse that i needed and so i have switched back to you know the milk that comes in the in the with the red cap i've gone back to whole milk and i love it you know who else loves it My cat, Peanut, he loves it. He's always at my feet when I'm drinking, when I'm eating cereal in the morning, because he knows I'm a pushover. And when I get done, he might get a few drops of of whole milk. So we're all happy um, about it. Now, I don't know if this is true or not. I'm not recommending that you switch to skim or to whole or whatever. Talk to your doctor. But um, the point I want to make is when it comes to milk, accept no. Substitutes. I mean, whole milk is so much better than skim milk. Uh, I don't want water that's lying about being milk. I I won't settle for, for watered down milk. I want milk. I want pure whole milk. And in today's scripture, Peter makes a similar point. Accept no substitutes, he says. Long for or crave pure spiritual milk. Don't settle for anything less than that. What is he talking about? Why would we need to crave pure spiritual milk? Because, he says in verse 23, we have been born again. There's a sense in which we are like babies. And what do babies need? What do they crave? They crave milk, pure milk. Back in the 1970s, um, an advisor to Richard Nixon named Charles Colson was arrested and sentenced to prison for some period of time because of his involvement in the Watergate scandal. And while he was in prison, he had a conversion he became a Christian, and he wrote a best-selling book about it in nineteen in the mid-70s called Born Again. And for 10 or 15 years afterwards, it was popular to talk about being a born-again Christian. You've all heard this. It seems to have um, faded in popularity over the years. You don't hear it as much as you used to. I don't know why that is, but I hope it's because we Christians realize that to... Call someone or to call yourself a born again Christian is redundant. There is no other kind of Christian than a born again Christian. Being born again isn't optional. To be born again means that God has worked a miracle. In your heart, you are not the same person, spiritually speaking, after you accepted Christ as your Savior and Lord than you were before. By virtue of this new birth, Peter says in verse 22, you are now able to love. In a way that you couldn't before with a sincere brotherly love. That word is Philadelphia, which might be familiar. Um, If we are Christians, we have new power. We have a new capacity for loving and serving that we did not have before. And this power comes from God through our new birth. And this new birth happens, Peter says, through the living and abiding word of god by which peter means mostly the word of the gospel the good news of jesus christ that he and the other apostles were proclaiming that would later be written down in our new testament and that good news to which the old testament pointed constantly i one of the best things uh, in my in my in my private personal Bible reading and study um, has been the fact that when I read the Old Testament, increasingly I see the gospel being preached in, in small ways on nearly every page of the Old Testament. If you, if you look for it, you can see the gospel even in the Old Testament. So don't ignore it If you when you read the Bible, because the old don't think that uh, when you read the Old Testament, you're not going to be reading about Jesus. You're not going to be hearing the gospel. You will be. Peter quotes, by the way, from Isaiah chapter 40. All flesh is like grass in all its glory, like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Now, when Isaiah wrote these words in the 6th century B.C. He was writing to Jews who were living in exile in Babylon, far away from their home in Palestine. The, the, the culture in which they were living was hostile to their faith. It was difficult and dangerous to be faithful to God, to, to live as one of God's people, and, and to get an idea of the kind of persecution that they faced, even death. They faced you can read the book of Daniel or the book of Esther it was tempting I'm sure for God's people living in Babylon to assimilate. To become just like everyone else in the surrounding culture. It was tempting, I'm sure, to give up on God. Yes, in the past, uh, for our ancestors, God did these things. God blessed them in this way. God made these promises. But where is God now? Here we are, far from our promised land. And and God is, is seemingly nowhere to be found. It was tempting, I'm sure, to give up on God Where is he in the midst of our pain and suffering? And if you recall what I said during the first couple of weeks of this series, you can imagine how the Christians to whom Peter was writing were facing a similar situation. Like like the Jews living in Babylon, Peter calls these Christians exiles. Because like those ancient Jews, they were not living in their homeland their home was ultimately in heaven so they they didn't feel quite at home like jews living in babylon these christians were facing persecution for their faith and like jews living in babylon these Christians were surrounded by the greatest civilization that the world had ever seen. The, the, the advances in, in the Roman Empire, the advances in culture, in language, in arts, um, in science uh, were, were unparalleled, just as they were for the Jews in Babylon. They had never, the world had never seen a civilization with as strong, as powerful a military might as the Roman Empire The Roman Empire must have seemed invincible and everlasting to many of these Christians. But Peter is reminding them that no, the most powerful people in the world are nothing but grass. Yes, they possess great glory now, but it is fading away. And that glory will die. The only thing that does last, Peter says, is the word of the Lord. The very word that gave them new birth. The very word that made them part of God's family. The very word that is currently saving them. The very word that is preparing them for their eternal home in heaven. How does this speak to our situation today? Thanks to our constitution and our bill of rights and the fact that we live under the rule of law. um, We have religious freedom. We are not, for the most part, persecuted. It's still socially acceptable to be a Christian. In fact, it's, it's politically advantageous for, for anyone running for president to be a Christian, whether they go to church or not, or whether they darken the door of a church. or When they run for president, they're going to talk about being a Christian and going to church. Well, because the vast majority of Americans identify as Christian. It's unlikely that a non Christian will be elected anytime soon to be president. All that to say, how does this scripture speak to us in our situation? Does it speak to us? I think so. There is a very popular and influential Baptist pastor named John Piper. He pastored a large church in. Um, Minneapolis for decades. He retired recently, one of the most gifted preachers of his generation. And he had a gift for reaching young people. In fact, you've heard of probably the the, something called the passion conference, which is held in Atlanta every year. He started that up. He spearheaded that. He, he preaches at that still. I think it's a big deal at one of these passion conferences several years ago. He shared the story of two older women in his church back home who in their retirement went to the country of Cameroon in West Africa as medical missionaries to love and serve some of the poorest of the poor in the world and to use their gifts to help them while also sharing the gospel of Jesus. A few weeks before he spoke at this Passion Conference. These two women died. They were on a bus on a mountainside. The roads weren't good, the brakes failed, and the bus went off the cliff, and the two women died instantly. Here's what he said. I asked my people, was that a tragedy? Two lives driven by one great vision spent in unheralded service to the perishing poor for the glory of Jesus Christ. Two decades after almost all, other, all of their American counterparts have retired to throw their lives away on trifles in Florida or New Mexico. No, that is not a tragedy. That is a glory I tell I'll tell you what a tragedy is he said and then he 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 uh he showed them a, a clipping from reader's digest which he acknowledged that none of these college age students would ever actually read he said I'll read you from reader's digest what a tragedy is Bob and Penny took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler playing softball and collecting shells. That's a tragedy. And people today are spending billions of dollars to persuade you to embrace that tragic dream. And I get 40 minutes to plead with you, don't buy it. With all my heart, I plead with you, don't buy that dream, the American dream, a nice house, a nice car, a nice job, a nice family, a nice retirement, collecting shells as the last chapter before you stand before the creator of the universe to give an account of what you did. Here it is, Lord, my shell collection, and and I've got a nice swing, and look at my boat. Don't waste your life. Hyper said, don't waste it. And I believe that the Apostle Peter is also telling us this morning, don't buy that dream. Don't buy any dream that's based on a glory that will wither like grass, that will fail like flowers. Don't buy any dream that isn't rooted in the Word of the Lord. Everything outside of God's Word and the things of God and His kingdom are passing away. They don't last. Why would you devote your life to them? Why would you devote your life to pursuing them? Why would you settle for them? When God wants so much more for you, you say, look, I'm, I'm nobody. Uh, I, I'm just a normal everyday Christian. I didn't know until this morning that I was a born again Christian. I, I'm, not, I'm not cut out for devoting my life to God the way those two 80 you know, year old missionaries were or the way John Piper is or the way some of these young people are. I'm not on fire for Jesus like that. I'm glad other people are. I mean, God bless them. But that's not me. I'm a Methodist after all. (laughs) Are you kidding me? Peter says earlier in this letter, God foreknew you. That means that for all eternity, God loved you. He wanted to save you. He wanted to make you His beloved son or daughter so that you could be with Him forever. And God paid an infinite price, the the price of the the precious blood of His Son to ensure that you would be saved. And God has an inheritance waiting in heaven for you right now. And God is protecting you right now so that one day you'll receive it. Why do you think God did all of this for you? so you could pursue a high-paying career like everybody else, so you could have a bigger house like everybody else, so you could have a Bigger TV with more channels so you could watch more sports on the weekend like everybody else. So you could flit away your free time on on hobbies or shopping or working out like everybody else. So you could put your kids through college so that they too could pursue that American dream and devote their lives to to pleasure like everybody else. So you could retire comfortably and live a carefree life devoted to doing whatever you want to do like everybody else else? Well, what do you want out of life? What is your passion? For whose glory are you working? Are you seeking first God's kingdom and his righteousness? If not, why not? You were bought with a price for a reason. And I say this to you as surely one of the world's biggest hypocrites. Because in my darker moments today, I want those same things. I see this now in a way that I didn't see it 16 or 17 years ago when I was first making sense of this call from God to go into pastoral ministry. But I see now that I, I, I kind of had an unspoken agreement with God. Right, I would sacrifice my moderately successful engineering career, and i would I would take a pay cut and I would go to expensive seminary and I would uproot my family and I would make these sacrifices and, and all this stuff to be a pastor to answer god 's call, and then in return, God would bless me God would bless me with various things, you know I mean. Maybe I'd be bishop before I turned 45. I don't know what I imagined, but I definitely thought that, you know, I had some glory coming to me for all of my sacrifices. I I wouldn't have put it that way 16 or 17 years ago, but, but I think that's what was happening. And I have over the years prayed that that famous Wesleyan covenant prayer with my congregations once or twice a year. It's a beautiful prayer. You know it. Put me to what you will, we pray. God, uh, so long as what you put me to makes me look good, (laughs) rank me with whom you will, God As long as I come out on top. If you're not first, you're last, after all. That's what Ricky Bobby said. So, you know, bishop, by the time I'm 45, that sounds good. Put me to suffering. Well, wait, suffering, I'm not so sure about that. The prayer goes on. Let me be laid aside for you. Let me be brought low for you. Let me be empty. I'm not so sure about that. I I used to pray this prayer with my congregation and I was the biggest liar because I didn't want any of those things. You know what I... You know what... You know who did want those things? These these two 80-year-old retired medical missionaries who went to West Africa. Who... riding in a bus on a mountain when the brakes gave out and they went over the cliff and they were killed instantly. That's what being laid aside for God looks like. That's what being made empty for God looks like. That's what being brought low for God looks like. Small price to pay. And if we ever meet these two saints in heaven someday and we ask them, was it worth it? What do you think they would say? They would say, absolutely. We're glad to do it. Glad to lay down our lives for Jesus in this way. I need to get to the the part of Scripture that I began with. This part about the spiritual milk Peter talks about. In Greek, it literally means... um, milk of the word. In fact, that's how the King James translates it. It's clear what Peter is referring to as spiritual milk. He's referring mostly to God's holy word. And how if we are going to sustain our lives as Christians, we need to crave God's Word, just like, just like a, a baby craves his or her mother's milk, we, we we need to treat it like we can't live without it. Tim Keller wrote a book on prayer a few years ago, and he shared this incident about how he was diagnosed with cancer and he was getting chemo or radiation or some some treatment um, for his cancer. It was a difficult time in his life, as you can imagine. And he realized that he had mostly lived his Christian life not being as faithful in prayer as he ought to be. And he and his wife, Kathy, were talking about this. And his wife, Kathy, who he would tell you is wiser than he is, Said Tim, if prayer was like this this pill that you take in order to send your cancer into remission, and and, and you couldn't live without it, you would literally die unless you unless you did it. Of course you would pray much more than you do. Of course, you would make it a, just a, a vital part of your life. Of course, you, you know, it, this would not be something that, that you would overlook. You would make it the kind of priority that it ought to be. And I believe that in God's word today, Peter is telling us something similar about Scripture. It is how we live as Christians. Our, our lives need to be based on the foundation of God's Word. We need to taste that the Lord is good. And, and the main way that God has given us to do that is through the Bible. It's not the only way. I don't think Peter is just saying that this, that this uh, spiritual milk is just the Bible. But we have an advantage over the, the, the readers of 1 Peter. They didn't have, in many cases, um, an Old Testament. And they, they probably just had maybe fragments or, of letters or, or just parts of the, 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 the New Testament that we have. We have a whole treasury of God's word at our disposal every day. Are we treating it like it's life-saving medicine, like it's what we need for the nourishment of our soul, for our very survival? Let me, um, let me share something about me. A couple of weeks ago in a sermon, I think I said something about uh, being on fire for the Lord. And I, I, I said that I want to be on fire for the Lord. Um, or that I... I, I I lost at some point during my Christian life my first love, um, as Revelation chapter two I think, talks about, and it's true. Um, when I was um, when I was I became a Christian when I was fourteen, and the Lord got a hold of me. I, I was on a retreat with a church youth group, and I responded to an altar call. I prayed a prayer of. Confession and asking Jesus into my heart, and I, I experienced the Holy Spirit. I'm sure of it. It was real to me, and I was excited. I got baptized. I, I, I told friends and acquaintances at school about what happened to me. I wanted the whole world to know. I was on fire. I had a zeal for the Lord. And sometime around then, I got an NIV study Bible. Maybe some of you have seen these. They're, they're pretty big uh, study Bibles, and they've updated them since then. But, but this was sort of the first of its kind, I think. It was just a great, you know, uh, resource for understanding what God's Word is teaching. And I just, I devoured it. It was so important to me. And in fact, within a couple of years, I literally wore that Bible out. I, uh, the cover came off, pages were torn, sections were missing, um, I eventually, before I went off to college, I, I, I replaced it with a new one, and it was leather-bound, and it had my, had my name you know, engraved in the leather, and I took it off to Georgia Tech with me when I went to college. And, well, I never needed to buy a replacement because I got busy with other things, distracted by school by the pressure to fit in, the pressure to succeed in a worldly sort of way, the pressure to find a good job, to work hard, to be a successful husband and father and before long I realized I wasn't I wasn't feeding on the pure spiritual milk anymore. And this lasted for years. Even after I went into ministry, I'm not proud of this. It's just a reality. Seven or eight years ago, the Lord got a hold of me again. (laughs) Uh, At a low point, he showed me that I was not taking his word seriously. And thank God he gave me the grace To change. And so. I can tell you from experience. That when we. Devote ourselves to God's word. We will taste. That the Lord is good. And we will want more and more and more. Of the kind of sustenance that our Lord provides us through his word. I want you to be just like that. I want you to be just like that. In fact, I brought my... I brought this with me. This is um, this is my... I got this a couple of years ago, a few years ago. It's an ESV study Bible. It's about the same size as my old NIV. And I'm proud and pleased to tell you that it is... Uh, it's looking a bit worse for wear these days. I'm wearing it out. And... I have never been happier as a person than I have been with a kind of joy that Peter says is possible for us. A joy that doesn't depend on the circumstances in our lives, that doesn't depend on whatever we're going through, whatever trials or difficulties we're facing. And I credit that to the pure spiritual milk that I've been feeding on. So my prayer for you is that like me, you will wear out a Bible. Let's wear one out together, okay? Almighty God, we hear these words, perhaps we realize that we need to repent And change? If so, would you please give us the grace to do so? Would you please enable us to taste that you are good and that we can build our lives not on the vain pursuit of some American dream, some mediocre American existence committed to pleasure and material things? but on the solid foundation of your holy word. Make us faithful. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you're on the south side of Atlanta on Sunday morning, I hope you'll join us for worship at Hampton United Methodist Church. We have two services. We have an acoustic contemporary service at 9 and a traditional service at 11.